Well, take your Bibles out and turn to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 1. And hopefully you got a bulletin on your way in the door. There's an outline inside that bulletin. You can follow along the message with that outline. Further, if you don't have a Bible open, you're going to need one open today. Not all the Scripture is on the outline that we're going to be looking at. We're going to get a lot of passages we're going to be reading and considering um, this morning. Um, if you have a pew Bible in front of you, you can turn to page 856 in the pew Bible, and that'll enable you to follow along the Scripture passage for today. As we're c- continuing this series that I've entitled Christmas Hits, looking at these songs that were born out of that very first Christmas that we find recorded in the Scripture. You know, when it comes to Christmas music and Christmas songs, there's something of a controversy that brews every year, and the controversy goes something like this. When is the appropriate time to start playing Christmas music? For some who are a little more festive than others, they'll start playing it after Halloween, right? Others who are more rational-minded, they wait until Thanksgiving is concluded before they start playing Christmas music. Well, I'm here at your service to offer a ruling on this controversy. It's okay to play Christmas music before Thanksgiving if it's good Christmas music. Because here's the deal. There's a lot of bad Christmas music out there, isn't there? Grandma got run over by a reindeer. Really? Santa baby. Terrible. And a really bad one is baby, it's cold outside. There's actually a line in there about the man spiking her drink with something. It's ridiculous. And of course, Alvin and the Chipmunks Christmas song, if you've listened to half of that song, you listen to it one time too many. There are some absolutely wonderful Christmas songs, though, that I think are altogether appropriate to listen to or sing all year long. O Come All Ye Faithful, O Holy Night, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Those are just some fantastic songs. Well, again, this series, we're looking at some of the inspired Christmas songs that are actually in the Bible. Now, it is doubtful that Mary or Zachariah or Simeon actually sang these musically. Uh, Sometimes I kid my wife that she's living in a musical because she sings all the time and she sings lines and that kind of thing. Uh, But this was not a musical. This was not a, a piece that you would see on Broadway, but the, the writing of the songs and the writing of the lyric is poetic in nature, and so we see these songs that we're considering. Most of these songs are known in a lot of circles by their Latin title. We considered last week that Mary's song is known as the Magnificat. That's the first word of the song in the Latin Vulgate translation of the Bible. The one we're looking at today is called the Benedictus, which is the word just simply blessing, which is how this song begins. Next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll look at in the morning Simeon's song, which is known as the Nunc Dimittis, which is, means now depart, now I can depart because I've seen the Christ. And then finally on Christmas Eve evening, we'll look at the angel's song to the shepherds who were in the field And that's simply known by the one-word title, Gloria. So these are the four songs we're looking at. And uh, today we're going to look at the Benedictus, the song of Zechariah. I'm calling this song a song of purpose. And here's why, not just because it begins with a P, which I'm fond of, but also because we see that Zechariah begins to understand and begins to see that this son that he's going to have, who would become John the Baptist, He is going to be born for a very specific purpose. He would be the forerunner. He would be the announcer 
of the Messiah. Well, if you have your Bibles open, what I want to do first of all this morning is before we get into the the song itself, I want to go behind the music. Some of you may remember that TV show from VH1, Behind the Music. We're going to go a little behind the music here on uh, Zachariah's song to try to see some of the history and reveal where this song came from. Because I, I believe if you see where this song came from and kind of the place where it was born out of, you will feel the explosion of joy and exuberance that Zachariah himself felt as well. So let's go behind the music. First of all, I want you to consider the ruler, the ruler. If you look in your Bible up at verse 5 of chapter 1, it says this, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. Now, Herod was kind of a mid-level manager in the bureaucracy of the Roman Empire, but he was given charge over the region of Judea. And so there he is ruling. And this... um, mention of Herod by Luke, who wrote this gospel account. I don't believe he's writing it just to give us a a biographical marker or even a chronological marker, but I believe he's letting us know they are in dark days. The nation of Israel is in dark days. They're under oppression. They're under Roman rule and dominion. And so he's highlighting the fact this is what's happening. The ruler, Herod. Look at the next one, the role. Look how verse 5 continues. There was a priest. That's the role we're considering. There was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Zechariah, John the Baptist's son, the author of the song we're going to be considering today, was a priest unto God. What that means is he was from one of the 12 tribes, the tribe of of Levi. He was a descendant in that tribe. Aaron, the first high priest over the nation of Israel, was also from that tribe. And you see here that uh, his wife, Elizabeth, was from Aaron's tribe as well. So this is kind of a double deal. Their lineage, their history, their ancestry is quite remarkable. They are very religious. Now, a priest had a specific role in the life and the worship of the people of Israel. They had all kinds of tasks and religious jobs that they were given. And their tasks, their jobs were really twofold in nature, to look backward and to look forward. And all the tasks they accomplished in the temple, whether that was sacrifice, whether that was the burning of incense, that was an anticipation or a remembrance of what God had done in the life of the people, but also an anticipation of what God would do in the life of his people, particularly through the coming of the Messiah. So these priests were a group of people who were tasked with the job of waiting the consolation of Israel, of awaiting the Redeemer, the one who would uh, rescue Israel from their oppression. And so here are Zechariah and Elizabeth. They are very, very religious people. They are devout people. Uh, The text says they walked blamelessly. Were they perfect? No. But they were very careful to observe all the commandments of the Lord, all the statutes of the Lord. They took very seriously the idea of obeying God's commands. So that's the role. Look at this third thing, the remorse. The very next verse, verse 7, says this, but they, that's Zechariah and Elizabeth, had no child because Elizabeth was barren. And both, Zechariah and Elizabeth, were advanced in years. 
Now, here's the deal. Being childless in that culture is not so much like being childless maybe in our culture. Some people today choose that as their pattern of life. They determine, I'm not going to have children. That was not what people chose back then. If you were childless in that era, it was a bad deal. It was not good at all. You see, because it was considered something like a curse from God to be barren, to have no children. Further, there was no Social Security. There was no Medicare. There were no 401ks or retirement plans. Your children were your retirement plan. If you needed to be cared for as an elderly person, it was your children who had that responsibility. So what happens if you're childless? What happens if you have no children? Then when you are advanced in years, you just hope someone is going to care for you in your elderly state. And so they're in serious trouble, but not just personally, but also from a national perspective, because what this means is being childless means you have no descendants who are going to take part in whatever God's going to do to the nation of Israel. And so it's almost as if, has God turned his back on us? Has God abandoned us? So consider them in their early married life, their friends, their siblings, their cousins, they all start having children. Elizabeth and Zachariah, no children. And then all of a sudden, their cousins' children start having children. And their friends' children's children start having children. And they are well advanced in years, and they are childless, not able to have a child. Maybe you've experienced perhaps this area of regret or maybe another area of regret in your own life, an area of loss, an area of mourning, an area of seeming like I'm missing out on something. It's like the guy I heard about who was in his upper 30s in a local church just like our church, and he was never married. And all the older ladies in the church were always after him about getting married all the time. When are you going to get married? When are you going to get married? And one particular occasion, he was at a wedding of another member of the church, and these old ladies came up to him and said, you know what? We think you're going to be next, honey. Don't worry about it. You're going to be next. Well, this got all over him. So he decided the next time there was a funeral... He went up to those old ladies and said, don't worry, you're going to be next, honey. You're going to be next. (laughs) For some reason, the gospel writer Luke, I think this is fascinating. Luke starts his gospel account by having us focus in and zero in on the barrenness of Zachariah and Elizabeth. Why is that? This sense of remorse and sadness and loss. Here's why I believe it is. I think their Remorse is symbolic, it's metaphorical for the loss of the whole nation of Israel, for the silence that they had experienced. Not only are they under Roman occupation, but for 400 years, God has been silent. The Old Testament is closed. The the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, is done. It's been 400 years since God spoke through his scripture, through his prophets, through his emissaries. And so just like Elizabeth and Zechariah could have thought, has God forgotten about us? The whole nation of Israel could think, has God forgotten about us? But here's what I want you to notice, how the Old Testament closes. Look at the last two verses of the book of Malachi, the closing verses of the Old Testament. Here's what it says. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. 
That's the end of the Old Testament. The book closes, and now silence for 400 years. They're just waiting for this promise of Elijah to come. That leads to the next bullet, the revelation. The revelation. Luke begins his gospel account with the fulfillment of Malachi 4. The fulfillment of this promise of Elijah who will come and proclaim and will turn the hearts of children to their fathers and fathers to their children. So here's what happens. Zechariah's division of priests gets called up for duty. And they're to serve in the temple precinct and serve around the temple. And by lot, they cast lots, and the lot fell on Zechariah that he would be the one chosen to actually go into the temple and burn incense unto the Lord. And when the time for burning incense came, the other assembled priests and other worshipers would be outside the temple proper, and they would be praying, offering their prayers to God, worshiping God. And there is Zechariah, and he's burning incense. And what happens? Zechariah is visited by an angel from the Lord. Look at verse 13, how it begins. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Let me stop right there. You know, often in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament alike, when there is an angelic visit, that's how the angel has to begin. Don't be afraid. (laughs) Why? Because they were obviously very fearful. They would strike fear in people, their presence and their power. He says, don't be afraid. It, It would not go well if you pass out from terror. I got a message to tell you, so don't be afraid. What does he tell them? Your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Now watch this, what the angel says in verse 16 and 17. And he, John, will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient of the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Does Gabriel's, that's who's speaking this, the angel Gabriel, does his prediction of Zachariah's son sound familiar? Yes, of course it does. We just looked at it at the end of Malachi chapter four. Gabriel is telling Zechariah, you know the promise, you know how the Old Testament closes, that there would be the spirit of Elijah who would come and turn the people back towards God. This is your son. This is John. This is who we, he, he is going to be. And you would think Zechariah would respond, at last, <laughs> salvation has come to Israel. At last, God's promises are going to be fulfilled. The waiting is over. But how does Zechariah respond? How can I be sure? <laughs> How do I know this is actually going to happen? I mean, you've seen me and my wife. I'm very old, and my wife's no spring chicken. How are we going to have a child? We've been barren our whole lives. This is way outside the realm of possibility. And he knows this. And now notice verse 19 and 20. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So what does Gabriel do? Gabriel do, excuse me. He gives Zechariah a timeout. He says, go to your room. No TV. I want you to think about what you said. (laughs) So for nine months, Zechariah has to think about 
his disbelief in the message from Gabriel. And so as he goes home, about a month later, Elizabeth is pregnant. About six months later, Elizabeth's young, young teenage cousin comes for a visit, and she's pregnant too. And Mary says to Elizabeth, yeah, my pregnancy is miraculous as well. Not the same kind of miracle as yours, but this is, I'm bearing the, the child of God, the Messiah. And your son is going to announce the coming of the Messiah. This is absolutely fantastic. So that's kind of the behind the music, uh, what's happening that leads to this song that Zechariah proclaims. So let's look at our focal passage. Uh, I'm going to begin reading in verse 57. I'll read verse 57 through 66. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zachariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father. What, is he, what do you want him to be called? And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed and he spoke blessing God and fear came on all their neighbors and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying what then will this child be for the hand of the Lord was with him now have you ever stopped to think for a second if you've read this story before this account of what happened to them uh, why was he struck speechless for nine months it wasn't until the eighth day after his birth that he was given the ability to speak again. I mean, I was in bed sick yesterday. You know how husbands are. We can't handle a cold, right? I mean, just knock us out. Why not give him a cold? Why not give him a, a limp? He gave him speechlessness. He was not able to talk for nine months. I think there's also rich symbolism here as well. God had been silent for 400 years. Zachariah was silent for the entire pregnancy of his wife, Elizabeth. And think about it. What role would John play in redemptive history? He would be the voice. He would be the voice. He would speak forth the coming of the Messiah. And so it's very symbolic that those silent years of the Old Testament closing and the silent months of Zechariah, they're... It's really parabolic in the way it symbolizes that. And the silence is broken with what I'm calling this song of purpose, this song of purpose. Now, this song that John's father, Zachariah, sings, he apparently had been marinating on this for nine months. He'd been thinking through the prophetic writings. He'd been processing in his mind the Old Testament and the scriptures of promise. And he says, you know, I think I get it. I think I get it. I, I see the threads coming together and how this is all playing out. And further, in, in verse 67, the text says that Zechariah was, quote, filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. So this song we're considering, it was Holy Spirit inspired. It is the word of God. The poem can really be divided in two parts, and that's why I have two main parts on the outline of this song. The first part I'm calling this the anticipation of salvation. 
the anticipation of salvation. Mary's song, the Magnificat, that we studied last Sunday, the focus of her song starts narrow and then goes broad. Zachariah's song is reverse. His song starts broadly and then focuses in narrowly just on this child, John, and the personal blessing that will come from John. So look in your Bible or on the screen as I read the first half of Zachariah's song, beginning of verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So Zechariah is speaking, perhaps even singing, of the anticipation of the salvation that God will bring and how all the promises of all the prophets through all the centuries are now culminating in this unique, miraculous time in redemptive history. Now, this anticipation of salvation I see manifested in two ways in the first half of his song. First of all, through his visitation, through the visitation of the Lord God. Again, verse 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. I want you to think about this. God visiting humans, that's remarkable. That God would make a personal visitation to humankind, that is incredible. There is this manifest presence that is being promised of the holy God, a holy visitation. So the question is, how did God visit his people? Well, what is this visitation? Well, the visitation was already there. He was within the womb of Mary at the time of this song. It's Jesus Christ, the eternal God of the universe, the creator of all that exists, taking on human flesh, residing within the womb of his mother, Mary. And just as Zechariah is speaking forth these words, God is visiting his people. And we know Zechariah was Holy Spirit inspired because he sings of the purpose of God's visitation there in verse 68. He says this visitation is going to be so that he can redeem his people. Now, what does that word redemption mean? It normally means this, to pay a ransom to set someone free. That there's going to be a redemption. There's going to be a ransom paid to liberate, to set a people free. That's exactly what Christ has come to do. Christ has come through his holy visitation, through his manifest presence among his people to redeem his people in order to set them free. In fact, I love the way the author of Hebrews puts it in Hebrews chapter nine. He says, he, Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Why? Thus securing an eternal redemption. The redemption, the ransom that was paid for your salvation, for my salvation, was the sacrifice of his own life and the shedding of his own blood. That very same blood that was coursing through his little body within the womb of Mary. 
that blood would be shed to save us from our sin. He purchased our freedom through his visitation, but also, secondly, through his victory. Through his victory. Look at 69 and 74 again. Verse 69, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. I want you to circle that phrase, horn of salvation. What is that? What is a horn of salvation? Well, the meaning of horn of salvation is kind of morphed throughout Hebrew history. Um, It could refer to the, the actual horn of like an ox. And there it would refer to something of strength and power and vigor and might. It symbolized maturity. Um, Also, there were horns on the altar where animals were sacrificed in the temple. And they would use those horns to tie up the animal so it wouldn't escape. And so there's this horn of salvation. It, It represented the mercy and the grace of God. So the horn of salvation is this strong one, this mighty one from David's line, from David's ancestry. What will he do? Verse 74, he would deliver us from the hand of our enemies. Zechariah has seen this, and he's been ruminating on this for nine months of silence, thinking about what is going to be pronounced by his promised son, John. And he's just overflowing here with Holy Spirit praise that John is coming to prepare the way for the one who would bring this victory, who would bring this salvation. Let me ask you a question. Do you ever just explode with praise over something? It doesn't have to be spiritual. It's okay. Do you ever just get really excited over something? Maybe it's whenever your team scores a touchdown. And you just explode with praise. Maybe if you've really been pursuing a particular job in a career and you get the job, do you explode with praise? I got the job, right? As the semester ends this month, many of you looked at your report card students. You said, I passed everything. You explode with praise. Maybe you have a concerning report from a doctor and you get the test results back and it's all clear and you explode with praise. It's funny, sometimes this time of the year, we see commercials of people giving cars at Christmas. Have you seen that? There's a Lexus in the driveway with a big red bow. Who does that, right? There's one commercial that was two Lexuses. I think the actual plural is Lexi. Two Lexi, his and hers, right? Explode in praise. I got a new car. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. Every good and perfect gift is from the the Father of lights coming down from heaven. That's fine. But what does he explode with praise about? He's been silent for nine months, and he's exploding with praise over the victory and the salvation, erupting. He's looking down at this little baby in his arms on his day of circumcision. He says, John, you will be the forerunner of the Savior. You will be the forerunner of the Messiah. And that really leads to the next thing that he sings about. He really goes into focus on him, and that is the announcement of salvation. He goes from this broad view of a whole nation now to this narrow view, the second half, just focusing on the specific responsibility of his son. Look at verses 76 through 79. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, 
to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Again, so this narrow focus is really focusing in on John as this special child. He's coming in the spirit of Elijah. He will speak forth. He will be a prophet. And because they recognized their son was particularly special, here's what they also recognized. John was not the point. He would be the pointer. John was not the point. He would be the pointer. And incidentally, I think this is a good reminder for all parents. We live in an era today where, judging by the family letters that come in Christmas cards folded up, all your kids are amazing, right? They are doing amazing, unbelievable things. And that's okay to celebrate your kids. But sometimes I'm afraid we live in a world where we bring our children up in this worldview that they begin to think, the solar system revolves around them, that all the planets align because of them. You, child, are the one that we do everything for, and everything is for you. It's okay to love your kids, but we need to remember they're not the point. I'm not the point. Elizabeth and Zachariah uh, Zachariah recognized John is not the point. He's a pointer. He was to announce the coming of salvation. How did he do that? First of all, he would prepare the way for the Messiah. He came to prepare the way for Messiah. Verse 76 and 77 again. And you, child, narrow focus here, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. This is Jesus's Uncle Zach. (laughs) And Uncle Zach is praising God over his own child, saying, this is your role. You're to prepare the way for the Most High. He says this tenderly. You're gonna be a prophet, John. And this is Zachariah's big insight. This is his aha moment. My son will be used by God to prepare the way for the Savior. And this is something they needed to hear, and it's something that we need to hear. What is that? Again, verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Here's why this is important. The nation of Israel then could have looked and thought, our problems are all external. We are under Roman occupation. We are under oppression. And we have these oppressors who are ruling over us. Our problems are political. Our problems are economic. Does anybody think that today? Sure. Our biggest problems, well, they're political problems. They're economic problems. They're national problems. And here's what Zachariah says. He's coming for the forgiveness of sins. For your problem is not external Your problem is internal. Their problem was not external, even though they were under occupation and they were being ruled by these oppressors. Their biggest problem was internal. They needed the forgiveness of sins. And this is what John the Baptist was coming to proclaim. He was coming to bring this knowledge of salvation. That's why he preached repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Why? Because the people needed forgiveness. 
And in so doing, John would prepare the way for the Messiah in order that he might do this next thing, present the truth of Messiah. Present the truth of Messiah. Look at verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Have you ever wondered why lights are so prominent in our Christmas decor? I mean, we've got an Advent wreath here with three candles burning. But what is it about lights in Christmas? Lighted Christmas trees. We've got some neighborhoods in Chattanooga that have an all-out war. See who's the most lit house on the street, right? What is it about lights? Well, this is the point, that Christ has come to bring light in the darkness. You know, if you're in the dark and somebody flicks a light on, are you happy or perturbed? Normally perturbed, right? That's the way my dad woke me up every day of my life. 6 a.m., light, full blast. Time to wake up, Joy. Ah. <laughs> so I did that with my kids too. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, I pass on the love. When we're in darkness, we don't like the light. It exposes things. It shocks us. It awakens us. But this is exactly what Jesus has come to do, to give light to those who are in darkness. And when God shines light in the darkness, it's because of his tender mercy, verse 78. His tender mercy is to shine light into the darkness. Friends, if God did not care about you, he would leave you in the dark. But he does care about you, and he loves you because of his tender mercy. Let me close with this. One Christmas song that is okay to sing before Thanksgiving <laughs> is the song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And there's one, the second verse of Hark the Herald Angels Sing has an interesting line and an interesting phrase. Look at it with me. Hail the heaven-born prince of peace. Hail the son of righteousness. I've seen some people see that son, S-U-N, and think, oh, that's a typo. Jesus is the S-O-N son of righteousness, not the S-U-N son of righteousness, but actually the author of, of Hark the Herald Angels Sing got it right. He is the S-U-N, the light of righteousness. Where did this come from? Well, we see it right here in Zechariah's song. Look at verse 78 again. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Now, where do you suppose Zechariah got this imagery of the sun, S-U-N, bringing light to our darkness? Where did he come up with this imagery? Well, he's actually repeating what's in the last chapter of the Old Testament. The book of Malachi, chapter 4, verse 2, notice what the Bible says there. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. I don't know if any of you have ever herded cattle before. I've herded a bit of cattle in my day. And we would have the heifers would calve, and we would move them from one pasture to another. You know what they did? When they got to the new pasture, they leapt. <laughs> they jumped. And it was awesome to watch these young little 
calves jumping around with excitement that they're in this new field, new pasture, until the day they were sent off to the butcher. But um, they were happy that day. This is the exuberance that they're feeling, that the son of righteousness has come with healing in its wings, and we are leaping with excitement and energy because the tender mercy of our God has shined upon us to light our way, to give our, uh, light to our path. My encouragement to you this week, we've got eight days until Christmas. My encouragement to you this week, on multiple occasions, practice a Zachariah. What do I mean by that? Sit in silence for an extended period of time. No music playing, no TV on, no one around you. Sit in silence and contemplate the promise of God that is fulfilled at Christmas. Sit in silence. And then as we come together next Sunday on Christmas Eve, on our Christmas Eve worship services, let's express exuberant joy because his light has shone into our darkness to bring salvation. As we break that silence, just like Uncle Zach. Let's look at my last thought. As we consider the purpose of John's coming, may we too get a revelation of the true meaning of Christmas and respond with rejoicing.